Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to take a few weeks off from reading Mark together uh, until after Easter. So for this season of Lent, what we're going to do is talk about the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus for people like us. What do Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish for us? What does it accomplish for the whole world? What do they mean for how you and I live our lives every day? That's what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to do it by looking together at parts of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which contains some of the most sustained and breathtaking reflections on the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the whole New Testament. So let's begin by looking at the first two verses of Romans 5. There's a lot more printed in your order of worship, but I'm actually just going to read and talk about the first two verses, the first two sentences. So you can follow along there in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we just sang together um, that we're turning unfilled to you again. And uh, you know those of us who sang that and really feel that, who feel hungry and thirsty to hear from you. You know those of us who sang it and um, didn't really mean it or don't even know what it means. And what we're asking, what I'm asking, is that you would meet every one of us, wherever we fall, inside of faith or outside of faith, near to you, far from you, not even sure if you are real, that you'd meet every one of us in the place where we are and give us this feast of your good news. Give us as much of it as we can handle. We feel a little bit like the disciples in that gospel lesson that we heard. We hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we don't even know really what it means. And so help us to see just a little bit, whatever we can handle more clearly. Show us the grace that you have given us in Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So a couple of summers ago, uh, our family got to go to Colorado uh, on vacation, and we stayed just outside of the Rocky Mountain National Park uh, in a little town called Granby. Um, so we got to get into the park and explore it a bunch. And if you've ever been there, you know that there's this incredible road uh, that runs through it. It's called the Trail Ridge Road. It traverses 48 miles uh, across that park. And about 11 of those miles are above the tree line, and the views are just astounding. They're beautiful. So we took in the visitor center one day. It's there on the Trail Ridge Road. And, and when we were there, one of the rangers mentioned another spot a little bit further up the road, closer to Estes Park, where you could park your car and get out and walk up to the highest point that is accessible from the Trail Ridge Road. And when I heard that, I decided I wanted to do that. I wanted to, to go up there. So we drove up the road a bit, we parked the car. No one, um, except for my oldest daughter Ellie, wanted to go with me, so we left everybody else in the car and we started up that trail. And to say that the air um, is thin up there is a, an understatement. Um, 
They say that where we were, which was a little over 12,000 feet, there's about 35% less oxygen than there is at sea level. Now, I don't know what that means biologically or scientifically, but I know practically what it meant is that I felt like I was going to pass out a bunch of times on this trail. And I also wished I had worn more than a long sleeve shirt and some sandals because, believe it or not, it started snowing even though it was the middle of June. Um, Ellie did a whole lot better than I did. Eventually, we made it to the top, and I can understand why now when people get to the top of significant things, they, they want to put down flags. They want to put down some other token of their presence there because it was awesome to be there. And it probably hadn't taken us much more than 20 or 30 minutes to get there from the car, but it felt like an accomplishment, at least to me. And the view was like nothing I had ever seen before. As cold and as windswept as we were, we hung out there for a while just to take it in. And instead of, you know, planting a flag, which I'm sure would have been illegal um, at that place, we did the 21st century version of leaving a token of our presence. We, we took a selfie together over the elevation marker. And you could just see the vast mountainscapes behind us through the strands of our wildly blowing hair. It's one of my favorite pictures from that trip. And I mention all of this because the part of Paul's letter that we just read together is written from the top of a hard-won climb. It's like he and his friends have just made it up to the top, and from there... They can look back on all of the hard terrain that they've covered before. They can look down into the verdant valley that awaits them as they keep walking. It was not easy to get there, but now they can see everything. Their past, their present, their future, all at once. And of course, these words are for us too. When we read them, we are right there with them. This is who we were. This is who we are now. This is who we will become. And it's breathtaking. I think of the first couple sentences of Romans 5 as being one of the highest points in the whole New Testament. And as afraid as I am that a guy like me is not the best ranger for a view like this, I will do my best to point out the sights so that we can see them and learn from them together. So Paul He begins, as he is often wont to begin, he says everything that he wants to say all at once. Um, That's what verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are. They're everything that Paul wants to say um, all at once. Everything that he's going to say until the end of chapter 8, he says here in two really dense sentences, an incredibly condensed form with this surprising economy of words, Paul says everything that people like us need to know about the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the very first thing is this summit, this great height that he's reached. He says, therefore, we have, since we have been justified by faith, How did we get to this summit? What does it mean? So here's what's been happening in the first four chapters of this letter. In, In the first four chapters of this letter, Paul has retold the story of God and his world. He has retold the story of God and his people 
he has gone back to the very beginning and spun that ancient story out again. He says to God's people that they had been set apart to reflect the love and the beauty and the power of God out into the world. They were supposed to be, in Paul's language, they were supposed to be guides for the blind and lights for those who are in darkness. They were supposed to be the teachers of the world. But instead, God's people... Paul says, along with all the other peoples of the earth, decided instead to live apart from God, to live on their own. And in doing that, they've made a wreck of pretty much everything that God had created to be good, including their own lives. It's not just a a national problem. It's not just a communal problem. It is an individual problem. This is the great tragedy of the story of God and his world. And it also sets up this incredible conflict. And the amazing way that Paul tells the story, it sets the conflict up for God. It is God who has the trouble on his hands because he has made promises. He's made promises that he was going to bless his people, even the rebellious ones, that he was through them going to bring blessing to the whole world. So the question becomes, the conflict becomes, How can God do this? How can he bring blessing to the whole world through a people who are constantly running away from him, constantly thumbing their noses at him, pretending that he doesn't exist, who are always making a wreck of things? Paul puts God's conflict succinctly in chapter 3. He poses this question, how is God going to be just and justifier? How can God deal justly with the very real sins of his people and still keep his promise to bless the whole world through them? How can God possibly save and spare these people that he's made promises to, that he loves so much without just looking the other way and acting like everything's fine? That's the great tragedy that lies at the heart of the story of God and his world. It is the great conflict in the true story of the world. What can God possibly do in this situation? Well, the answer to that question, church, is one that we never would have come up with. It's one that we could have never guessed in a million years of guesses. It is only the inscrutable logic of divine love that could sort this tragedy out, that could work this conflict out. This is what God does. He steps in and he takes our place, yours and mine. He takes all of our running away. He takes all of our rebellion, all of our selfishness, all of our arrogance, all of our pride, all of the ways that we have taken really good things and twisted them into awful things, all of our lust, all of our avarice, all of our greed, all of our consumptiveness, He's taken it all on his shoulders and he's borne it away to the cross where he dies under the weight of our sin. Behold, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes all of our sin and we get his righteous life. We are, as Paul says, justified. We are declared right not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. That's how God solves the conflict. 
And it's really clear, it is incredibly clear that Jesus doesn't do this because his back is up against the wall. He doesn't do this because it's the best plan B that he could think of in the moment. Jesus does this to show us his love for us as clearly and as plainly as possible. This is the way Paul talks about it later in chapter 5. This is what he says about it. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In case we don't get it, he says it again. While we were enemies, while we were running away, while we were pretending he wasn't even there, while we were thumbing our noses at him, we were reconciled. While we were doing that, through the death of his son. That is the mystery, church, the beauty, the love that is at the heart of the Christian faith. God died for us so that we can call him friend. That's the summit. That is the towering peak. And before we look around from there, before we say, well, what else can we see from here? It's good for us to think about what being there means. First, let's say that you're not a Christian, but maybe you're thinking about being a Christian. You're thinking about Jesus. Check in church out. And maybe you've come to believe for whatever reason that being a Christian is about keeping a certain set of rules. Or, or maybe as you think about Christianity, as you think about this faith, you have come to believe that maybe it is uh, about a list of things that you need to believe about God and about yourself and about the world. A, a running list of doctrines or something like that. Or maybe as you think about Christianity, you come to the conclusion for all kinds of different reasons that really at the heart of it, it is an ethic. It is a way of life. It is a philosophy of life. I can understand why you might think all of those things, and in some ways Christianity touches on all of them, but it would be a mistake to see them as the heart of the faith. Because this is the heart of the faith. God shows us how much he loves us by dying for us, by dying for you and me. And to be a Christian is to have faith in that one who loved you enough to die for you. So here's what I want to say. As you're thinking about Christianity, let that be the center of all of your thinking. Right? Let that be the center, if you dare to, of all of your praying. Right? Let that be the scandal. Let it be the trouble, the beauty, the, con- the conflict, the comfort, the mystery. Let that be whatever it is to you, because that is the heart. That is the summit. Okay, so say, though, that you are a Christian. You have put your faith in the one who loved you enough to die for, me, for you. Well, if that's the case, then I don't think there's any way that people like us could ever hear about this enough. I don't think there's any way that this could not be said to us enough so that it would begin to sink into who we are and how we live. Maybe an analogy would help. When when Allison, my wife, looks me in the eye and when she tells me that she loves me, and it does all kinds of things for me, if I believe it, It makes me feel accepted. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel secure. 
But it isn't just what it does for me. It does something for us. It does something for who we are together. It means that I don't have to keep my guard up with her and I don't have to perform for her and I can be who I really am with her. Being loved is powerful and perhaps, perhaps the most powerful thing about being loved is that it calls out an answering love. I want to do those things for her if I can figure out how to do it. So you might know what I'm going to say. Imagine, imagine believing that God loves you. Not knowing it like it's something on a checklist, but believing it as the most grounding truth of your life. How fearless a people would that make us? How thoroughly and utterly accepted, how secure of a people would that make us? We wouldn't have to perform for God If we believed that he loved us as the grounding truth of our life, we wouldn't have to keep our guard up for him. We wouldn't have to pretend that we were someone else that maybe he could really love. We could just be who we are in front of him. So it's true. It is true that God loves you. And you don't have to take my word for it. It's just right here in black and white. You can read about it. You know what else you can do? You can do what Christians have done for millennia now. You can read of his love when you read of his passion and death. All of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them tell the story of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, of his suffering, which we sometimes call his passion, They tell the story of his death in incredible detail. If you've ever read the Gospels, you know that that's true. They get to the end and they just slow down to a halt. And there's a reason for that, all kinds of reasons for that. And one of them is because that kind of lavish detail expresses the lavish love of Christ for us. It is a prodigal, prodigal love. It's there for us to meditate on. It's there for us to think about. It is there for us to pray about, and we should. You know, that would be a great thing to do during Lent. We talk about, I'm going to give this up. I'm going to take that on. Those things are good and helpful. But, you know, what would 5 or 10 or 20 minutes every day reading about the passion and death of Christ for you, what would that do? I'll tell you what it would do. And you can take me up on it and find out. You will find it unalterably true that it will call out a fearless, bold, answering love out of you. You will love the one who loved you first more. And you will love the people all around you more. That's what meditating on the suffering and death of Jesus does for people like us. So Paul says, because we have been justified by faith, there are these three closely related, intimately related things that are also true of us right here and right now. These are the things that we can see from the summit. It's the view from up here. First, Paul says, we have peace with God. 
Now, as many times as we talk about peace in Scripture, I think it's good for us to be reminded that it means a lot more than what we usually think of when we hear the word peace. When we hear and use the word peace, what it means to us is that the hostility has ended. It means that the war is over. And that's absolutely true of the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here. There is no longer hostility between us and God. There is no longer something that is in between us. That's one of the things that Paul communicates over and over again in such intimate language. He uses not the term justification. That's the the legal term. And it communicates really important things. But he switches and he starts talking about reconciliation. That's the term of relationship. That's the term of friendship. It means there is nothing standing between us and God anymore. We are... If we can dare to believe and say it, we are his friends. And peace is about that, but it's about even more than that. In in Scripture, peace is not only about the absence of hostility. It is also about the presence of flourishing. It's not just that nothing stands between us. It is that the relationship that we have with God is growing into what it was always meant to be. Something that had been lost is being uncovered. Something that had been broken is slowly being restored. We are becoming more fully alive and more fully human in front of him. We'll come back to what that means in a minute, but we should see that this peace is really closely tied to the second thing that Paul says that we can see from up here. This is the way he says it. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. When Paul uses that word access, he's using language from the Old Testament, language that was about the worship, the restrictive worship of the Old Testament, right? Only certain people had access to certain places. Not just anyone could stroll into the most sacred parts of the temple. But what Paul is saying is that those kind of rules, those kind of regulations, as good as they were for a time, they have no use at all anymore because by having faith in Jesus, we have access into his grace. We have access into the love of God, the generosity of God. We have access to the presence of God himself. It's an incredible image. It's like we're supposed to imagine that we are so surrounded in the love, in the generosity, in the mercy, in the forgiveness of God that it becomes like the air we breathe. We take it in and then we breathe it out as a gracious presence into the world. And both of these things, being at peace with God and the grace that we stand in and breathe in and move in, They are in turn intimately related to the last thing that Paul says that we can see from the summit. It's actually something that we do. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I know that there's a chance that that phrase sounds a little vague, maybe a little bit churchy. It's the kind of phrase that we kind of skim over while we're reading because it isn't immediately obvious exactly what it means. I mean, it sounds good. It sounds true. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but what does it mean? So let me restate it another way, three different ways, actually. 
we rejoice because we can finally be the people that God made us to be. We rejoice because all that had been broken and twisted in us is being restored. We rejoice because we can see a whole new world opening up in front of us. All three of these things are things that I think Paul is communicating when he talks about us rejoicing in the hope of God's glory. Because when Paul uses that language, here's what he's doing. He's going back, way, way back to the very beginning, to the beginning of the story of God and his world. He is going back to the, the, the very first part of it in creation. And he is reminding us that we have been created in the image of God. As Psalm 8 puts it, We have been crowned with God's glory. And church, here's what that means. That means that the deepest human vocation that's hardwired into every one of us, whether we recognize it or not or want to recognize it or not, (laughs) the deepest human vocation is to reflect who God is out into the world. That's what we have been made for to reflect God's love and power and justice and generosity and mercy and beauty and creativity out into the world. And to do it in everything that we do, from the grandest thing to the most mundane thing that we do every single day of our lives. And when we do this, when we do this, we are alive like we were meant to be alive. My guess is probably every one of us in here have at least had a flash of this, like a little bit of a taste of this, right? When you've done something that makes you say to yourself, this is what I am here for, right? This is what I was made for. When you do something for someone else, normally an act of giving for someone else, and and they say to you with deep gratitude, thank you, It is so amazing when you do these things, right? When you work hard at whatever it is that you do and you feel all alone the pure gaze of God's pleasure on the work that you have done, right? If you have experienced that feeling, even just tasted it once, twice, three times, then it's because you were in some small way reflecting who God is out into the world. And Paul is saying that people who are justified by faith, people who have peace with God, people who stand in grace, are people whose whole lives have been set free to do that again and again and again and again. To be part of making new creation happen, the restoration of the glory that had been lost. It may come in fits and it may come in starts, But the promise is certain, church, that one day that will be all that we can experience. That will be all that we know. These things, being declared right by God and being peacefully reconciled to him in love, breathing in his grace like our air and breathing it out into the world as the restored humans that we were always meant to be, you know what? These things come to us only one way. There's only one thing that brings them to us. It's not our striving. It's not our doing. It's not our earning of it. 
as if we ever could. These things come to us as they are graciously poured out by God into us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are saved by his life. Let me pray for us. Father, help us in whatever way that you can, with whatever means that is at your disposal, help us to see that this is true, that we have not by our own effort, but by your love and grace, we have come to this place where we are set right with you, we are at peace with you, we are growing into the people that you created us to be. We are coming fully alive in Christ. Father, help us every day to get a bigger taste of that and to believe it, not to know it like it's on a checklist, but to believe it as the grounding truth of our life. Do it for our good. And do it for the good of this broken world around us that we are building your kingdom in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.